Hi everybody, just a couple quick announcements before the show starts. I have started a Patreon. Uh, if you've ever listened to the show, you've enjoyed it, and you want to offer some support, this is a great way to do that. I work a full-time job in addition to doing this podcast, and uh, a little support would go a long way towards doing things like improving the audio quality of the show, uh, putting out more episodes, and hopefully bringing on a, a real producer at some point. So the way to go there is patreon.com forward slash dunk tank. And the second point is I have an email. It's called dunktankpodcast at gmail.com. If you ever want to offer uh, feedback on any episodes you've listened to uh, or you want to recommend guests for the show, shoot me an email. So that's it for now. And without further ado, please enjoy the show. Andrew Walder is a political sociologist at Stanford University and the author of several books, including China Under Mao, A Revolution Deroiled. This is Andrew Walder. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. Uh, I am here with Andrew Walder. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. You're quite welcome. Um, <laughs> well, so I wanted to talk to you. Um, you've written a number of books about uh, the period of Chinese history under Mao uh, and about the Cultural Revolution, uh, mm -hmm. which is a very fascinating subject. Uh, a number of books that you've uh, written, A Decade of Upheaval, uh, Fractured Rebellion, China under Mao. Uh, and throughout this conversation, we'll probably talk about um, bits that are in uh, each of those books. Um, but I, I first kind of want to understand uh, how this uh, event happened, um, because it was, uh, you know, in many ways, a catastrophe affected millions mm -hmm. of lives. Um, and, and I want to just get a sense, like my basic understanding is that before this, you have the great leap forward. It's a failure. Mao is vulnerable. And he sees in Russia that uh, Khrushchev has taken power and is now renouncing Stalinism. And he sees sort of shadows of, you know, oh, this could happen to me. Is that basically the motivation for this cultural revolution or am I missing something? Well, that's certainly part of it. But um, in addition to that, in 1964, Khrushchev was kicked out of power. Mm. <laughs> uh, and I think that actually uh, freaked Mao out. Uh, even he was unhappy with Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. But I think he was even more surprised that um, Khrushchev could be removed by his um, associates uh, when he was away on vacation. And Mao, Mao, when he was out of Moscow, and uh, I forgot, I think he was in Crimea um, at some vacation resort. Uh, and when he came back to Moscow, he found that he'd been voted out of power. And this, Mao had to think about this a, a little bit because he spent a lot of time outside of Beijing. He had villas in Hangzhou and Wuhan that were beautiful and spent a lot of time there. Uh, he didn't do much of the day-to-day -day work of running a government. He left that to people like Liu Xiaoqi and uh, Deng Xiaoping and Zhou Enlai. But I think um, the part that um, is, is related to, to the Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin is that I, I think Mao understood very clearly. I don't think he was paranoid. I don't think he was imagining things. I think he understood very clearly that the top people in the party that he relied on to run things actually were quite attracted to the idea uh, that Khrushchev had been pushing for a long period of time. 
that uh, the, the main purpose of socialism was to improve the lives of the livelihood of the people. Uh, it wasn't to run campaigns against alleged class enemies. Uh, it, it wasn't stability and economic development really was what socialism should be about. And Mao thought that was that led inevitably to what he called capitalism. But I think what when he said capitalism, I think what he really meant was a bureaucratic uh, elite uh, of, of highly educated experts that set themselves up above ordinary people and that inequality would return. And I think, I think Mao was right about that. <laughs> he was right that the Soviet system that he'd set up tended to become bureaucratic and unequal, but tended to rely not on former revolutionaries or people with deep ideological commitments, but experts, economists, engineers, the kind of people who told uh, politicians uh, and radical leaders of, of socialist states that their ideas were impractical and wouldn't work. <laughs> so the Cultural Revolution, we, uh, Americans can probably uh, relate to the Cultural Revolution today as Mao's campaign against what we would call the deep state, uh, that there was a, a bureaucracy of experts, um, highly educated people who rose up uh, not the way not the way uh, committed party members did before the revolution, which is what by sacrificing themselves and risking their lives. Uh, instead, they studied hard. Uh, they pushed for career advancement. And for Mao, these are not the kind of this is not the kind of elite that he he, he thought um, a revolutionary, a socialist state should have. So, um, you know, the Cultural Revolution um, came, on the, came on the heels of a catastrophic uh, initiative by Mao, which is a great, great leap forward. It was, um, you know, it's just based on numbskull ideas about how economies develop and the economy crashed. Um, the most tragic part of that was that uh, um, it led to an orgy of, of, political pressure on local officials to pledge impossible increases in grain output. Then it pressured them to uh, report uh, success, which led to over procurement of grain from villages, even as the farmers no longer had anything to eat. And that went on for a year and a half. And the result was 30 million it's a very sound number, 30 million people. Uh, if you analyze the age structure of different, the 1953 and 1964 and 1981 national censuses, uh, the number of people who are missing who should not be missing is around 29.8 million. And so that's that's a hard number. And uh, the leaders figured out that this was happening by the end of 59, early 1960. Uh, and and the only question was, what, what are they going to do about it? What conclusions are they going to draw? And, and Mao tried very, very hard to insist that it wasn't as catastrophic as the other leaders were saying, and that uh, the, the principles behind it were correct, and maybe the implementation is wrong, and so forth. Ultimately, he couldn't maintain that um, that fiction, uh, and they they, they basically uh, withdrew from the Great Leap Forward, and Mao turned turned over the rescuing of the situation to Liu Shaoqi, who was number two in charge, um, Zhou Enlai, who was the premier, and Deng Xiaoping, um, and I've forgotten, I think he was a number four 
in the party hierarchy, and they proceeded to do things that totally rolled back. Um, uh, in some cases, collective farms, uh, some of the some of the uh, some of the most prized uh, radical initiatives about, about how to how to push forward, how to use political uh, mobilization to increase production. Uh, and Mao was very upset was, was, uh, after, because uh, Liu Shaoqi repeatedly described the situation as a disaster. Uh, and he warned Mao that this was, this was like one of the worst things that could happen and that we we're in danger of, of losing the mandate of rule. And Mao thought this was, this was just an over, overly negative uh, overly negative assessment of the situation. The other, the other part of, of the economic damage was that um, uh, there was also an industrial uh, depression, which was as severe, roughly equally as severe as the depression in the United States in the 1930s. Um, and so, you know, Liu Shaoqi did not mince words when he talked with Mao. And, and when they had party meetings, he did not mince words. And Mao did not like that. Uh, he didn't like I think he he concluded that Liu Shaoqi basically agreed with Khrushchev and um, the Soviets that um, that the Great Leap Forward was a he didn't say it this way but the Soviets had been ridiculing the Great Leap Forward as a lunatic uh, as, as the policy of a lunatic and you know Liu Shaoqi didn't never described it that way but he certainly described in party meetings, the results as being a disaster. And that indirectly just was a stab at Mao. Um, now, I don't think there's, there's no evidence that Liu Shaoqi or Deng or Zhou Enlai um, were plotting to remove Mao. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the question is, well, what's, what's the purpose of the Cultural Revolution? Well, you could say it's for Mao to remove the other leaders who might, who might try to remove him, but he was he was still committed to his his um, vision of how socialism should develop. It should not develop just as a way to have experts and a new elite develop the economy. Uh, I suppose if if this was in a capitalist setting, you know, he would he would call that neoliberalism, right? <laughs> Which okay. is the kind of curse word for him. The curse word was revisionism. For us, the curse word these days is, is neoliberalism. Um, and I, I think he was right about that. And one of the things uh, reportedly that he said to, um, uh, in a clash with Liu Shaoqi, a private clash, private argument by Liu Shaoqi, that Liu Shaoqi reported to his wife uh, and would later made it made its way into her memoirs. Uh, he, they were arguing about whether this was a disaster or not. And Mao said, you know, you're being much too negative. And then he said, my God, you're giving the land back to farmers to farm individually. This is a complete rejection of socialism. If that's what you're doing now, what are you going to do after I die? Well, that's exactly what they did after he died. And Mao was saying this in 1962, and essentially he was predicting what Deng Xiaoping would do in 1980 and 81 after he took over. So uh, you know, I think that's that's uh, that's a general motivation. Um, now, how how it's carried out, I guess you can ask me questions about that. Sure. That yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I guess one thing you said in there, where he he talked about his fear of capitalism as being this sort of a bureaucratic elite. Um, one of the things that seems like I, I don't know if this is a contradiction in Mao's mind or what, but it seems like a lot of what was going on during the Cultural Revolution um, was you would have 
sort of what, what is sometimes called like a second society of people who have like their own underground factories who are mm -hmm. trading things on the black market. They're not supposed to be trading yeah. um, and these kinds of things. And that was also attacked as like capitalistic, but that, that wasn't managed from bureaucratic elites. That really was a bottom up movement. Right. Uh, right. Was there a, what was like the explanation there for? Well, there was a, you know, especially the countryside, there was a constant attempt by farmers to trade on their own because, you know, the, the collective farm system just kept them all hungry and they couldn't control, they couldn't control what they planted. They couldn't control what they harvested. And if their rations weren't, weren't enough, I mean, they didn't get to eat a lot of meat, a lot of the meat and pork and so forth was shipped off to the cities cooking oil and so forth, they were forced to sell all their agricultural products uh, at, at low state set prices and they couldn't sell them anywhere else. So, you know, farmers and, you know, there's hundreds of millions of them out there. And, um, you know, whenever they got a chance, they would try to grow, to raise chickens in their yard or, you know, uh, capture frogs and fish in the ponds and sell those. There was a spontaneous, uh, you know, and Mao, as a Marxist, saw these as sprouts of capitalism. So he's also worried about that. Um, but um, that was not, they were so overzealous in suppressing any kind of marketing activity that there really wasn't that much going on at the time the the, the Great Leap Forward, I'm sorry, the Cultural Revolution was uh, being carried out. But as, as time went on uh, in the 1970s and the economy was not doing well, uh, there was a kind of a relaxation and an expansion of second economy kinds of activities. And so he was upset about that as well. I mean, he thought there was a spontaneous, I mean, and that's the part of his analysis that makes sense that, you know, in a Mark, in Marxist terms, that is, that is, um, that is capitalism, some very small scale capitalism, but he thought that would lead to polarization uh, that if you disbanded collective farms, you'd have a wealthy peasantry emerging that they would accumulate more land and you get back to the old system. Um, the part about his analysis that didn't make sense was that the bureaucracy that the Soviet system set up was not capitalism, uh, but he, he, he had no other analytic <laughs> framework for understanding that, except that it was unequal and it might as well be capitalism, I think was, yeah. was his point of view. Um, he was not a particularly rigorous and careful thinker. He didn't have to be. It's like, you know, it's like, Xi Jinping thought today, I mean, if you, if you become the top leader, everyone says you're a genius, you know, so yeah. no one's, no one's, uh, no one's going to really argue with him about it. But, you know, I've always thought as a, as a sociologist that he would have benefited greatly from reading Max Weber. <laughs> Why do you say that guy in particular? Well, because he says, look, that, that there's, there's two contradictory trends in, in modern, in modern uh, Western civilization, uh, modern civilization. One is expansion of capitalism, um, uh, and the other is the growth of bureaucracy. And capitalism itself becomes more bureaucratic, and it conflicts with democracy because uh, um, the only the only way to break down bureaucratic allocation. He was very critical of the Marxists in Germany uh, in uh, in the early 20th century, who actually were very influential. Um, and most of what he wrote about bureaucracy as being the main trend. Um, is that if, if you create a socialist system, all you're doing is intensifying the trend towards bureaucracy, where, and that, that takes, takes power away from ordinary people. And, and it also conflicts with um, democracy, which is what 
the Marxist thinkers in Germany of that period wanted. They were social democrats. Um, and he said, if you if if you seize power and and you create a bureaucratic machine to run everything, uh, all you do is make the you undermine any any attempt at democracy, but you also have uh, bureaucratic experts controlling people's lives. Uh, and that's a new and that that to him was was the most worrying thing about the trend of modern history. And I think, that's what Mao, that that's really a big part of what bothered Mao, but he didn't have, you know, he didn't read these bourgeois analysts who were critical of, uh, of Orthodox Marxism circa 1915, 1920. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of interesting also when we're talking about capitalism here and seeing these very like small scale markets as being ooh, this capitalist enemy. Um, I had this uh, economist on the show called Robin Hansen. Uh, he, I, I was asking him about capitalism and he kind of made an interesting, what was for me an interesting point of like, well, when we say capitalism, what are we actually talking about here? Like, is it markets? Is it trade? Like these things have been going on forever. And it feels like the kinds of, uh, you know, subversive at the time economic activities that uh, certain Chinese people were engaged in. Um, they, they certainly to themselves, it doesn't feel like they were conscious, self-conscious capitalists. They were just sort of doing what made sense at the time. Yeah. Um, was there any, um, was there any hint in the party of people saying like, well, this actually isn't the enemy. This isn't, you know, we can safely say this is not, you know, capitalism yeah. as such. Um, or, or were people all pretty, pretty much on board that if there's any amount of free exchange of goods, and services that that's yeah. verboten. Well, I mean, there were um, there were quite sophisticated Marxist economists in China. Sun Yafang was one of them. There's people in the leadership who were fairly savvy about how to run a socialist economy, uh, including Chen Yun. Um, and they were attracted somewhat. There were two ideas that came out of Eastern Europe and, and, and the Soviet Union in the in the, the post-Stalin era in the 1950s, early 60s. One was that um, the cult of the infallible leader was a deviation from socialism and that it led to horrific oppression. Um, and that's what Khrushchev shocked everyone with his highly emotional so-called secret speech where he denounced Stalin as basically a, a, a crazed murderer, um, which actually is not too inaccurate. Um, just shocked everyone in the room. But the other thing that was happening is that people in the Eastern Bloc, um, including Russia, uh, but also in Poland and Hungary, in particular Czech Czechoslovakia, began to consider ways that market mechanisms could be integrated into the running of a socialist economy to make it less bureaucratic and more effective without, without uh, threatening public property, without uh, uh, creating private property. Uh, and uh, th this was a very attractive idea. It was a very avant-garde idea. Mao did not understand it. He didn't like it. And any of that, he, he just believed that any, any consideration of market exchange would create the mentalities that would return eventually to capitalism. Uh, and, you know, according to these more sophisticated socialist thinkers, that was not at all the case. Um, and ultimately, those ideas are what won out in the 1980s 
uh, in China, except China went much further than those people ever, ever considered. And so now you have all kinds of private property and you do have a property to leave. And it, it is in many ways a capitalist system. Um, and actually that's, I think that's much, much worse than Mao's worst fears. <laughs> yeah, uh, Much worse. I don't think he ever imagined that that, that would happen. But I, you know, I think he could claim that he was right. See, you start messing around yeah. with, and and <laughs> you're going to get uh, a return to, to full scale capitalism with a property elite and you know extremely wealthy people who are connected to political power and so forth. So you know, my view of Mao is that he he, he was not crazy. He was he he was he was in many ways a reckless politician, but. He was deeply committed to a certain certain vision that wasn't that clear about what he wanted to create, but it was he was very clear about what he opposed. Um, and, and so the Cultural Revolution basically was smashing the machine, rebuilding it, and having an entire generation of young people, both students and workers, have the experience of challenging authority and rebelling. Uh, in other words, he wanted, and you know, this was not just a slogan. He, he called them the revolutionary successor generation. Now, it's a very romantic and in many ways harebrained idea, but it does it does make sense. <laughs> There's a certain consistency to it, um, and also, you know, after the end of the rebellion, uh, that was the Red Guards and rebels were suppressed. Uh, at the end of by the end of 1968, they were no longer able to operate. Um, and Mao sent um, all of the students. He closed the universities, uh, and he he for a couple of years he closed the high schools, uh, and he sent all the students down to the countryside to engage in manual labor. Why? So that they would understand what it was like to be an ordinary person, and they would not develop these elitist attitudes. Um, and not have any connection to the lives of ordinary Chinese. I think that's by and large the case today. <laughs> you know, the really, really uh, talented students that you know we see in elite universities in China today, and the ones that come to universities in the United States are, you know, incredibly well educated, but have have done nothing but study their entire life and you know just it's it's like you know the classic student that spends the last you know their entire adolescence preparing their application for stanford or harvard or princeton right um and they're very talented but they but they have no experience whatsoever working in a factory or in, and they don't even have summer jobs i mean when i was you know a teenager i, I worked in construction i worked as a janitor, you know, I, I had lots of ordinary jobs just to earn money. Right. These kids don't even have that. Um, and so, you know, Mao, Mao, wanted, Mao wanted to break down elite attitudes by having these students really work in very poor areas uh, and, and, and suffer, eat bitterness as <laughs> Xi Jinping is telling them to do now. Um, uh, and the other, um, the other part of that was, um, and this makes sense also, is in, at least uh, in the early, the first few years of the 70s, he also had the, um, these new governments that were set up all over China called revolutionary committees. Uh, the party system didn't operate for a period of time at all. And he had, the, he had uh, almost all the bureaucrats go down to the countryside and do manual labor. 
Uh, these weren't prison camps. They weren't labor camps like, you know, political prisoners, but they were harsh places where you did manual labor for three months, six months, and so forth. So, you know, the entire faculty and staff of Peking University and Tsinghua University went to this basically, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, it was it was this marsh near a lake in Jiangxi province, and they had to build their own they had to build their own um, um, residences, their own dormitories. But most of them got schistosomiasis through the the, the worm, got worms in their system of uh, uh, parasite worms in their system from walking yeah. in the mud there, and it was it was pretty tough. And and that place was. You know, it operated for two, three years. So, you know, was Mal crazy? Well, maybe he was crazy to think that he could, you know, change everyone's thinking by doing this. But there's a certain logic to what he was trying to do. It failed utterly. I mean, you know, all it, all it did was it made the students hunger for higher education and just just wanted to die. To, they were dying to get back to the cities. And shortly after Mal, Mal died. Yeah. Everyone, everyone knew it was so unpopular. They didn't even try to stop the students from going back to Shanghai and Beijing and Guangzhou, uh, and they just went back. Uh, and uh, you know, this look at the system they set up. I mean, <laughs> they try to do something as different from what Mao had in mind as you could possibly imagine. And the reason is that they realized in after Mao's death that they had fallen so far behind Japan. Uh, even South Korea and even Taiwan uh, in economic development, they had gotten nowhere really. Um, and, you know, they, they tried to tell themselves, oh, we built a lot of factories and, you know, we've, we've, we've improved healthcare and life expectancy, which is true, but in terms of GDP per capita, they really had not made much of an advance. Uh, and there's a, there's a graph that I, I show um, my classes that shows that in 1949, it compares the GDP per capita, compares the growth of, of China with India. And in 1949, um, when the communists took over power, uh, the GDP per capita of China was only 65% of what it was in India. India was wealthier. Um, China basically created a, you know, a coherent state in the early 1950s. They had some sensible economic policies and they, they caught up with India in 1957, and then the Great Leap Forward happened, and they fell way back again. And then they gradually uh, climbed back to catch up again with India in 1966, and then the Cultural Revolution happened, and then they fell behind. They didn't fall behind as catastrophically, but uh, as as the Great Leap Forward. But um, I think they did a deeper long-term term damage to things like uh, the educational system, scientific research, human capital, and so forth. And so it took a, took a long time uh, for them to, to get back to the level of India in 1976, the year that Mao died. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not the record. You know, when China's leaders took over and, and installed the socialist system in 1949, the slogan wasn't, oh, we're going to catch up with India, right? And if you look at that trajectory, essentially what it means is that from 1957 to 1977, China made no progress relative to India. There were 20, 20 lost years. 
and you know, Deng Xiaoping was a hard-nosed, pragmatic guy who had very little tolerance for bullshit and said, we're going to do something completely different. Uh, and it doesn't matter what Mao is opposed to. We're going to do what we need to do. And I think Japan in particular was a model for uh, for him uh, because, you know, Japan was in pretty bad shape in 1945. Uh, you know, we bombed them. The United States basically bombed it to smithereens uh, and not just Hiroshima and Nagasaki and their economy was in shambles. Their society was in shambles. Yet, you know, they were well on the way to becoming the second largest economy in the world by 19, the end of the 1970s. They, they eventually be, surpassed the Soviet Union in 1987. In uh, that model, you know, that model clearly was in trouble. I mean, you didn't, you didn't have to be a genius to see that that model really had run out of gas. It, why do you think that China was able to recognize, okay, we've caused this huge disaster and let's pivot yeah. where the Soviet Union didn't wasn't able to achieve that pivot yeah that's that's very interesting i mean i i uh, i think a large part of it was that um and this is very different from the soviet union um mao had succeeded in one thing he had smashed the system uh the party was in the party and government was still in disarray at the time of his at the time of his death uh, the 1970s were all about a struggle over how much you are going to restore the system that had existed before the Cultural Revolution. And so long as Mao is alive, just like the, the, after the Great Leap Forward, he, 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 was willing, he was willing to try to create more stability and put the economy back on track, but he wasn't willing to make too many concessions to return to the way they did things before the Cultural Revolution, because that would have meant the whole thing was a complete waste of time, complete disaster. So um, there was a struggle throughout the 1970s about how much to rebuild the party. And the party was deeply factionalized and it was a mess. So what that meant was Deng Xiaoping had something that Khrushchev didn't have and that Gorbachev didn't have. He had a he had, a, he had a bureaucracy that had been smashed to pieces and was in no, it, it was in, the, the bureaucracy was in no shape to block uh, creative initiatives to go in a different direction. Um, the story about Gorbachev's failure was his attempt to go around the bureaucracy. I mean, there, there were, in the, Soviet, the Soviet central bureaucracy had uh, enjoyed stability and continued to amass power from the time of Stalin's death all the way through the end of the 1980s. Uh, and, and they were quite able to defend their interests. Um, and Deng Xiaoping inherited this situation that Gorbachev would have loved to have had, where the bureaucracy still hadn't been rebuilt. And that he was going to, part of the political package he was offering the, the people who lost their power in the Cultural Revolution was, I'll bring you back to power. Yeah. But we have a new way of doing things. And so they backed it. Uh, they, had, they, they were all in with what Deng Xiaoping wanted to do. Uh, and they were, they were by no means willing to defend the system that had, had existed even way back prior to the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and they wanted, they wanted China to develop just as much as, as Deng Xiaoping did. And 
So I think ultimately that's how he was able to pull it off. So that's, I think structurally, I think that's the reason China was able to escape. And it's, I've been calling it a kind of a paradoxical unintended outcome of the Cultural Revolution. It, it kind of structurally paved the way uh, for a leader to move in a radically different direction. And, you know, China's reforms, which started really at the very end of the 1970s, were very radical for their time. I mean, this, this, this was a really avant-garde stuff that they were doing. Uh, and when I was um, doing research as a PhD student, in um, in China, uh, in, in Hong Kong in 79 and 80, and later in China in the early 80s, their economic journals were filled with ideas about market socialism coming from Eastern Europe. Um, and this is where the Hungarian economist Janusz Kornai became very popular in China. Uh, and, you know, he, he was someone who wanted to introduce market mechanisms uh, into planning uh, and uh, uh, those ideas became very popular and that's the way they went. The other part of it, of course, is, you know, that leaders make a difference. And uh, the fact that Deng Xiaoping was able to claw his way back and his, you know, his personality and, um, you know, his, uh, uh, he had little, he had, he had absolutely no tolerance for ideological mumbo jumbo. He, he just, he, um, he, he saw Marxism as a way of making China strong and prosperous. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if another leader had, who was closer to Mao, uh, took over or someone who wanted to return to the Soviet system, uh, uh had taken over, then China would have not gone in, in this radically different direction and arguably wouldn't have been as, uh, successful economically as it has been. It, you said there that uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, didn't have tolerance for ideological mumbo jumbo. Well, one of the things that seems kind of unique, maybe, about uh, China and the uh, the latter half of the 20th century, uh, as well as the Soviet Union, um, and I, I guess I suppose a few like fascist states as well, is that uh, they they seem to be um, seems like most like governments throughout history, and I I could be wildly wrong here, but they seem to not be like ideologically driven to their core. It's mostly like a, a ruler. They have a program of how they're going to maintain power, maybe help their citizens. Um, it, it seems like the ideology injected into the state, um, mm -hmm. it, it seems like whatever that ideology may be, is kind of um, leaves things to be out of balance because you have yeah. all, you know, life just springs out, like markets leak into the situation where you know, you try to stamp them out, et cetera. Um, yeah. Is that like a fair evaluation? It, was this something that- Yeah, look, look, the core the core of Mao's thinking uh, was something he borrowed from Stalin's uh, unique ideas uh, in the, the mid to late 1930s, which was that uh, even after you expropriate the old, the property from the old ruling classes and set up uh, a socialist bureaucratic, economy, that class struggle continues. It doesn't disappear. Uh, and it's manifested in arguments about economic policy, among other things, and foreign policy. So uh, if if during that period you have people who want to um, uh, make friends with uh, or reduce tensions with the major capitalist powers, 
that could indicate bourgeois thinking. If you have people who think that, well, maybe there's a role for a mixed economy or market mechanisms and so forth, that would be an indication of bourgeois thinking, which uh, was something that was a manifestation of class struggle. Uh, and that was a case in, in, in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. 19, it was one of the excuses for the, the, the great purges um, when, uh, you know, when Stalin basically had trials against all the other top leaders and had them executed, that was, that was part of it. And when Mao was learning what, uh, socialism was, he read that it was in that period that Mao started reading what, about what was going on in the Soviet Union and that kind of, that fixated his understanding of what it was to have a socialist regime. You have a great leader who is a genius and who leads the people against these class enemies who are resisting forward progress of socialism and only want to return to capitalism. And, and this was what Mao revived in 1964, five and six. And it was the core idea of the Cultural Revolution. It, it was class struggle for him. Um, and he mobilized, he did something Stalin never dared to do and no other leader of this kind of political system ever dared to do. He mobilized the masses to freely publish their ideas, to attack leaders in their workplaces, to attack the leaders of their cities and counties and, and provincial governments. Uh, there was a period of about you know six or seven months where it was open, open season on any, any leader in China. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like being, it's far worse than being canceled on social media. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. You know, I've had editors, from the, I've had, we're talking about ideologues, I've had ideologues from the Wall Street Journal contact me and they try to draw, don't you think that canceling is like the Red Guards? I said, well, if, if you not only can, if you not only denounce them, um, but put them on the stage and beat the shit out of them. Uh, and then drag them and put them in a closet. <laughs> and if you were supported by the top leader of the country, well, then it would be like <laughs> a cultural revolution. Can I suggest um, one one thing that, because that, that that is an interesting note that I think a lot of people do try to push that line of like drawing mm -hmm. the parallels between whatever's happening today and the cultural revolution. Yeah. The, the one thing that does seem, obviously not in terms of the severity, but the, the thing that seems uh, slightly familiar is the uh, sort of the chaotic nature of today it's you know here's the the line that we're taking and then it comes down from on high a week later that oh no 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 we don't believe that and then people yeah. in a dime and say now we're denouncing these people like uh, th does that feel familiar to you at all or is it just like a useless comparison um well i'm not i'm trying to I mean that I'm, I I recognize that in the Cultural Revolution, but I'm trying. I, I can't really think of examples sure. from the present day. I, I think I think what what resonates in in people's minds is that you know that there are extreme and often uh, overblown criticisms and accusations against people for which there's no effective defense. And, um, you know, when leaders of universities and so forth uh, don't take a strong stand um, uh, against those kinds of attacks, then they permit them to proliferate and they do a lot of damage. Well, that happened during the Cultural Revolution because the leaders themselves were under attack. Uh, that's not so much the case. I mean, the, the things that I, I read about, I don't see that much of it here at Stanford. 
um, despite what you might read in, in the newspapers. Um, it's, you know, it's faculty members uh, that are, or, or outside speakers come in and are prevented from speaking, which, you know, is, uh, I think, unacceptable, right? Yeah, you should listen to what they have to say and argue against them, uh, even if their ideas are um, really objectionable. But it, you know, just, it just, <laughs> the cultural revolution, nothing that's happening here in this country is anywhere like what happened uh, in, in the Cultural Revolution, because, you know, uh, no, no person in power, no person with prestige was going to be defended by anybody. Um, and, you know, not only their reputations were at risk in their jobs, but their, their lives were often at risk. I mean, 17, was it 1700 high school principals and teachers were killed by Red Guards in Beijing in, in the summer of 1966. Where does that happen in the United States? Yeah. Um, what would be, what would really be like the Cultural Revolution is if, um, you know, a certain former president was elected um, and um, changed the uh, disposition of the federal law enforcement agencies and turned them into a hunt for people who had in, who were woke, let's say, sure, yeah, and vocalized, you know, young Republicans and you know, what, what, uh, these various uh, student groups who are pretty vocal uh, to attack faculty uh, and uh, and and replaced university presidents, at least in the state-owned, the state-run system. Then you'd have something that looked like the Cultural Revolution, right? Frankly, I think some of the things that are going on in, in Florida uh, remind me more of the Cultural Revolution. Because frankly, let's, let's face it, what, what happened in the Cultural Revolution is that it was initiated from the top down. And you know, the point I tried to make to the, to the, the people who were uh, trying to draw something out of me from the Wall Street Journal uh, was that the people who engage in these activities are, are actually pretty weak. They're not, they're not in positions of power at all. Um, and they have no backing from, from the government. Uh, and, you know, many of them are actually, you know, risking uh, punishment for, for doing what they do. I, I you know, I, I don't like mob cancellations. Uh, and I, you know, but, but it, if you want to draw serious parallels, you have to recognize that the Red Guards uh, in, in China had the support of, of the highest leader of the land. Yeah. Okay. They had the support. So, you know, let's think about Mao's Red Guard rallies. He had, uh, what did he have? 12 red, gigantic Red Guard rallies in Tiananmen Square. They're much bigger than Donald Trump's rallies. But I think he was trying to mobilize the base, right? I mean, I think that's that's what you need to draw a serious historical parallel with the Cultural Revolution because it was top down. You had a you had a charismatic leader. Um, I don't know why he had charisma. He was a terrible speaker. Um, he was charismatic one to one. I think he you know he, he knew how to deal with people privately, but he was he he, he did not give great speeches like Adolf Hitler. Right. right. Actually, it's true of Stalin as well. He, he was short, had a squeaky voice. He didn't speak Russian that well. A lot of that applies to Mao as well. He, but Mao was not short. Uh, he was pretty tall. 
uh, for, a, for a Chinese person. He was pretty tall. Uh, um, but he had a terrible Southern accent um, <laughs> and, and kind of a squeaky voice until he got older and then it kind of got deeper and darker and more threatening. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I, I, I think, you know, that, that I see the parallels, you know, you don't want mob rule, but um, yeah. it, it just the whole structure of the thing, and it was much more severe. No one's ever died from being canceled in the U.S., have they? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, maybe, I don't think so. Yeah, maybe some of but I, I don't think so. That's um, a high bar. It, it, <laughs> it is, but for sure. Uh, and, you know, people aren't being beaten. I mean, they they went in. They didn't just put up wall posters, which is equivalent of a of a social media post, right? Uh, they invaded people's homes uh, and they searched right. their homes, and they they beat the crap out of them. And that's how a lot of these people got killed. Um, now there was a little bit of that, um, in the United States after the election, um, where people went to the homes of officials who dared to certify the election. Um, sure. so, but they didn't, I don't remember reading about home invasions, of course, Nancy Pelosi's husband, <laughs> uh, but you know, there, there's, um, anyway. Um, but yeah, f- fair enough. The um, the thing that w- when you mentioned the, the Red Guards in there, and then I think it's also kind of interesting on a, on a slightly related note, where uh, oftentimes in like popular culture um, and in politics, the young are, are invested with a lot of hope uh, and seen right. as being um, maybe more innocent, more pure uh, than their elders. And, and yet you look at the way that young people behaved during the Cultural Revolution, and yeah. it, like a lot of them were really vicious. Like you talk about all these yeah. that were killed, etc. And like, did did it give you any, uh, you know, maybe special insight into like what what it means to be young, like and, and radical? I mean, you see that that contrast. Yeah. yeah, well, there's a little bit of that um, in the anti-war movement. Um, in the United States, yeah. 68, 68 to 70. I mean, some of those students uh, were, were were pretty violent. Um, yeah. uh, and some of them eventually became terrorists. Um, Had one of them on the podcast, Bel Airs. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, and that's something you don't have today. You don't have terrorism to the left. Um, that's not where we worry about violence and terrorism coming from right. these days. Um, so where was I? <laughs> Forgotten now. Talk, talking about basically young people and their, uh, this... yeah. The, what I wanted to say was that uh, the most vicious Red Guards were adolescents, yeah. uh, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kids. And psychologists will tell you that uh, people in that age group haven't quite yet formed their kind of the, their moral core um, that that they're much more um, uh, susceptible to influence by authority figures and so forth um, and they don't have the kind of break kind of moral breaks against doing atrocious things um, you know I tell I tell my I've I, when I ad lib in some of my lectures, I tell my students that, you know, the high school that I went to was not, you know, uh, an elite high school. It was a, 
kind of an average public high school with a wide range of students from different economic backgrounds and so forth. And um, there was a subculture of violence there, um, you know, largely connected with the football team, as I recall. <laughs> that, you know, I told them that if, if the cultural revolution hit my high school, I could have told you which which of the which of the guys would have been the most violent red guards. And, yeah. you know, actually some of them ended up going to prison. One, one guy uh, that scared the hell out of me committed murder shortly after high school and he went to prison. I mean, so, um, and, you know, I, I, I thought high school, and this is probably also true for elite high schools, that adolescents can be very cruel. I mean, you know, and it's not just mean girls. I mean, it's, it's just, about, totally. there, there's a lot of real, I don't know what your experience was like, but, you know, I, I, I was in a position where I was not persecuted, but I also was appalled by, what was going on uh and i could see that you know it was kind of like a like a chicken farm where you know it was a pecking order <laughs> it to in in my case we've come to a point now where I, I think for whatever reason maybe it's just the the spate of school shootings these kinds of things the the tolerance for any kind of uh, violence within the school is uh, much lower so you know like a, yeah. a time uh, with permission from his teacher, he brought like uh, uh, some kind of Japanese sword into school. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was, you know, he was originally from Japan. It was, you know, connected to his dad, etc. And um, he wound up showing it to some kid in the hall and just immediately got kicked mm -hmm. out, you know, even though he had permission. Yeah. And so that wasn't a case of someone not even being violent, but just having an instrument of yeah. violence. Well, I'm, my, my memories are from the late 1960s. <laughs> okay, so... Yeah. Uh, nobody, nobody, nobody brought guns into school. I, I never saw guns. I never saw weapons. But, you know, basically my point is that um, it, there was a subculture of cruelty there that I did not like. And I loved going to university because it just wasn't there. Um, you know, and I, I felt like my educational life began after I left that high school. Um, I didn't like it, frankly. The, the guy, I, I have to ask, the, the guy who murdered somebody, was that something that when you heard about it, it was just a total shock or, you know, I guess you know, it, wasn't, it, it didn't surprise me because yeah. uh, in high school, uh, there was an incident. It must have been his senior year. Uh, where he was out, I don't know if they were drinking, but, you know, he was out with his buddies and they, they picked up a hitchhiker. It was kind of, I don't know if it was a homeless, kind of a homeless person, but I think it was like an alcoholic or something. They took him out to um, a state park somewhere, an isolated place and beat the crap out of him wow. for fun and left him there. And this guy was the ringleader and the, the you know, the story circulated um, among, among the, the guys and the athletic teams and you know, uh, and then I would see this guy in a hall and I'd look at him. I think this guy's a stone cold killer. Um, right. You know, I, it, it, you know, he just didn't seem to ha have the same kind of <laughs> makeup. Yeah. And, you know, he had followers, but, you know, th these weren't violent kids, but they thought it was funny, you know. Um, so there's that sort of thing. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that. <laughs> that maybe that was the case in Chinese high schools as well. But that's, that's, a, that's a, you know, yeah. developmental psychologist point of view. The other, the other 
thing I've heard actually from uh, Chinese uh, who were there then, they said, one thing you have to keep in mind is that, that, that students then, back then, uh, just like they are today, there are enormous pressures put on them to perform. Um, and in that period, there was enormous pressure not only for um, doing well on the um, standardized exams, but you were also pressured to do the politically correct thing and go to meetings and make sure that you were always saying the right things. And so, you know, one thing that um, that these um, older Chinese told me is you have to realize that the Cultural Revolution released all of those pressures. And, you know, they just went nuts because it was the first time in their life they could do whatever they wanted. I mean, they canceled the, they canceled the um, standardized exams uh, in May, or, uh, I think May or early June of, of 1966, which meant students didn't have to cram. Um, you know, they canceled the meetings of the youth league and so forth, and this told the students, you know, just make your own way. Well, you know, it was like being pressure being released from a pressure cooker. So that's another another point of view. Um, you know, I've I've talked to you know Chinese of that era, you know, who were trying to make sense of what happened to them, uh, what happened to their country, what what their classmates did, maybe what they did. Uh, after the death of Mao, and they were worried that there's something wrong about Chinese culture. And I said, look, I said, look at the structure of the, of the institutions there. Any, you could plug any people into those, doesn't matter what their culture is, and they would have reacted in many of the same ways. Totally. And that's when I usually tell them a story about the, <laughs> my classmates in high school, what I'm sure would have been the most violent Red Guards. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't think, I mean, it's, it's nice, it's nice to have introspection and so forth, but I, I don't, I've always told my friends from China that they shouldn't beat themselves up about alleged cultural flaws. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it, we're almost at an hour here. But the Germans did, by the way, <laughs> the Germans overdid it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> They they really are a marked contrast with I, what I understand has been the case in Japan. Um, uh, but I may be wrong about that. But the Germans, I mean, for a long time, just beat themselves up about. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. It seems like they're. I talked to some Germans my age, like in their twenties and stuff like that. It seems like it's still kind of a thing where if you wave a German flag, people look at you kind of you know askance. Yeah. Um, well. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about that. There was a Chinese, a Chinese, couple of Chinese tourists who went to the Reichstag, uh, and they gave the Hitler salute and filmed themselves, oh. and and they were arrested. Yeah, <laughs> they were arrested because that's that's you know hate speech and 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 uh, uh, kind of reviving Nazism is illegal in Germany. It's not illegal here, right? It's free speech here, but. Um, but uh, <laughs> they created a big diplomatic uh, uh, issue. Uh, this is about five or six years ago, it was before COVID. Uh, so they thought it was funny, uh, and they, they didn't realize what they were stepping into. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, so they were just kidding around. <laughs> yeah, they thought it was cute. They thought it was cute. Oops. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
That's rough. Um, so what I was going to say is we're, we're almost at an hour here and I don't want to take up too much of your time. There's one thing I did want to ask you about that we haven't gotten to though. And okay. it's something that is kind of, uh, seems very strange to me, which is that uh, talking about what is ostensibly a very radical society, uh, but the way that they treated sex was very conservative. And like you, you hear stories about people who, like uh, some girl said she rode a bicycle uh, with another guy, shared a bicycle or something like that with yeah. him, worried that she was going to get pregnant. Uh, is that uh, how well, it could happen? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> sure, yes. Yeah. Uh, but it, w what was going on there? Like, why were people so conservative about that? Well, uh, it's it's interesting because um, there was a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on uh, behind the scenes. Sure, a lot. Yeah. Um, and you know, young people. Um, you know, I think parents were quite prudish about explaining the birds and the bees. This is urban areas. It's not the case in the countryside. Right. I mean, you, know, you see pigs and, and, and livestock mating all over the place. You figure it out pretty quickly. And, you know, the, the people, it's basically educated Chinese that, that are very prudish about this. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there, there was... You, you, when you interview people about their, I did years ago and interview people about their lives, then there's all kinds of extramarital affairs going on. There's all kinds of sexual harassment and pressuring younger women by powerful men to have sex with them. And, and you know, actually that kind of thing flourishes in a setting where people are, are uh, publicly very prudish about sex, because, you know, if you if you're pressured into to having sex or something close to sex with someone illicitly, you're not going to, you're not going to tell anybody about it because you'd be condemned. Um, so there was, you know, plenty. And, and to this very day in China, the, the Me Too movement goes nowhere. Um, you know, actually, the women who try to bring it up are often uh, sanctioned or imprisoned. Well, uh, how about that? Uh, you know, the, the most famous case of that was the woman, uh, tennis star who uh, accused a member of the ruling Politburo in China of coercing her into um, sexual relations for a long period of time. And she disappeared. And for uh, and uh, the, the women's, uh, the International Women's Tennis, Tennis Federation demanded to talk to her and canceled all of their tournaments in China. And that cost them a lot of money, but they, they made a stand. Um, and so the woman didn't disappear, but the guy who was accused didn't get in any trouble, as far as we know. There's a little bit of public embarrassment. So I mean, I think this was this was a case back during that era. And all I can say is there was a whole lot more monkey business going on yeah. than than meant the eye, uh, meant, meant the eye. And I, you know, once once my my feeling is once you you got married and you understood what sex was, um, that there that at that level we're not talking about kids or teenagers at that level then people you know basically there were people who had quite um, non-monogamous habits but was their attitude towards sex was that like orthogonal to the whole communism thing or was it tied up with it i mean i don't i don't Frankly, I think it, you know, given how Spartan life was, I think that's one of the few pleasant things you could do. <laughs> it was free and it was free. 
Um, you know, that's, that's the best I can, I can do on that question. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, um, if it's consensual, it's definitely fun, right? Um, sure. it doesn't cost any money. Uh, you don't, you don't need, you don't need a, you know, you don't need a, there weren't any fancy restaurants or hotels back then. And, and you know, True, yeah. is, I think this is one of the main sources of, of entertainment for, for consenting adults. Yeah. Uh, and even in some cases, you know, Jeffrey Epstein types, uh, of which I'm sure there were plenty. Um, whenever you have powerful men and um, vulnerable women, that's going to happen. And it happened yeah. a lot. And, you know, one of the things that leaders were denounced for in the Cultural Revolution during, uh, during the wall poster campaigns was precisely that. Uh, and that's one of the things that uh, goes on uh, in social media today. Uh, and I don't know if you noticed, but when you have the anti-corruption campaign uh, and people are arrested, they invariably talk about having lots of mistresses and, and so forth for these. They're not only uh, they're not only immoral in their economic dealings, um, they're corrupt and immoral in their sex lives. You're, you're saying that, say, Chinese officials today who get arrested. Today, yeah, the anti-corruption campaign. I mean, usually it's very common for an official who's disgraced in the anti-corruption camp for them to add on, on, oh, yeah, he spent the money on a string of mistresses and so forth. That's very common. Um, I don't know what that means, right? Yeah. Uh, but all I'm saying is don't assume that because there was a kind of a prudish, uh, Puritan-like public attitude towards sex that that somehow people didn't have sex with each other i mean uh, sure. outside of it it just and, and i guarantee you and if there was some way to measure this i guarantee you in in the in the states that in the united states that seemed to be most prudish about you know conservative about birth control and sex education i guarantee you that that the the the, the <laughs> The amount of illicit sexual activity that goes on there um, is no less than in the so-called libertine states. <laughs> like, right. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of it. That's not something that I have an attitude towards it, but I've never done research on it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's And the point you mentioned about you, you don't have any fancy restaurants or anything like that. So a man must have been, you know, e easy to impress a date. Yeah. Just going to walk. Yeah, there's, there's none of that. I mean, let me. The first time I went to China in 1980, I went to Beijing, and you know, I, I've been studying China for six years. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I checked in. I was with a tour group. The only way I could go to China was to go with an official tour group organized by China Travel Service, and so I, I got onto a tour with a bunch of people from Austria and Australia and. Texas and Los Angeles and so forth. And we, they checked us into our hotel, uh, the Beijing hotel uh, and my room overlooked Tiananmen square. So for me, this was like a Muslim going to Mecca. I mean, I was just so pumped up that this is the place, right? I've been reading about this for years. So I decided to go out after I checked in my hotel and I walked around the streets and I, I came to a park. It was a kind of a small park of a lot maybe one block square. It had a lot of bushes, kind of trim bushes and sidewalks and so forth. I walked in and no, it didn't seem to be anybody there. And, uh, but I could hear voices. It was almost like the park was, was haunted because I could hear 
quiet conversation. And as I walk into the park, I realized under each one of those bushes was a couple, a young couple. Wow. <laughs> and there was no place for them to go. There, there were no restaurants worth going to. They were all state owned. They were closed at night. Uh, the food there was lousy. You wouldn't, and you, <laughs> and you needed ration coupons to, to eat there if you're a, a, a local. Yeah. But under every single, under every single bush was a couple. Now, you know, they weren't discussing Shakespeare. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, some years later, even in 1986, when I was living there, um, I used to go jogging um, in, in this huge park, the Temple of Heaven Park. And I remember if you went off the trail, you would you would run into couples under a tree or under a bush. And on a couple of occasions, I, interrupt, I interrupted something that was very serious that was happening there. I turned around and, and got out. So, you know, there, this kind of illustrates what I'm saying. Yeah. And, you know, the public attitudes, I mean, if, if it came out that you've been doing this, you would have probably gotten in big trouble from your school or your workplace, but it still went on. Yeah. So you haven't asked me the single most interesting question about the Cult Revolution, which is how did the other leaders let Mao get away with it? That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, why didn't they step in? Just yeah, say, well, it's about it's sort of about bending norms. At what point do you at what point do you push back? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Mao was very popular with the base, so to speak. <laughs> Was he though? It seems like after he died, people were kind of like. Well, after he died, after he dies, but I'm talking about 1966, right? Hmm. Because you had what you'd had was um, uh, more than a decade of young people who had been filled with stories about Mao as being almost like a god, yeah. uh, and and so they did not question him, uh, and you know the leaders cultivated this cult of the of the genius and personality. He's a great hero. Uh, and I think, you know, there, there are two ways that Mao got away with it. Um, one was he, he kind of pushed and pushed and pushed, but also he was very, um, he was very strategic in making sure that the people he knew would push back against him were removed from office before he made his move. And I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to draw parallels with Donald Trump, but, but, you know, Trump did a little bit of that. You know, he was very, very angry at uh, Jeff Sessions, for example, had him removed. Um, but Mao, Mao did that in a very stealthy and, and highly competent way so that when he launched the Cultural Revolution, uh, Liu Xiaoqi was out of the country. Zhou Enlai, there was nothing he could do because Mao had all, he had the army. He had the secret police. He had the flow of documents through the uh, through the bureaucracy under his control. Uh, and I've forgotten the, the fourth one. Uh, uh, but but he had very carefully uh, laid the groundwork for launching an attack on what we would call today the deep state. Yeah. Uh, and there was nothing. He kept everyone you know who who had enough prestige and power to push back, uh, he he incapacitated them. Very clever, I mean, he's very, very effective. I think that's you know one way that, if, if you wanna draw a parallel between him and Donald Trump, that's where it ends because Trump was not 
very good at, at that at all. Um, he always said what he was going to do. He was <laughs> he always talking in a self-incriminating way. And, and Mao did not do that. Mao was very secretive uh, and very, very crafty. Um, and, uh, you know, the other part of it was, okay, well, why didn't, still, why didn't they, they you know, still, why didn't they organize uh, yeah. and stop him? And I think, I think that generation, you have to remember that this generation, only 17 years earlier, China was basically a failed state. Mm. I think they were worried that if they went after Mao, that the system would come crashing down and you'd have, you know, regional warlords again and, and, and so forth. And so I think that generation, they felt there was one thing they had accomplished, and that was unifying China uh, behind more or less its Qing dynasty borders. Uh, and um, that was, and, and build China's first modern nation state that could actually administer the country down to the village level. And I think they felt that if they uh, pushed back, they would create splits that would jeopardize everything. And I, I, I guarantee you that's Joe and Lai's idea. That's Joe and Lai's motivation. Um, Why do you say that's his motivation in particular? Because he he basically was at the center of the Cultural Revolution machine. He had he had more administrative power than anyone else. When Mao told him to do something, he'd do it, but he would always do it in a way that would limit the damage. Okay. Mm. Uh, and you know, it, it, he was he was he was the adult in the room, so to speak, right? But he's a very, very effective adult in the room. Uh he, he was always appeared to support whatever Mao wanted, but he always worked in a very stealthy and clever way to interpret Mao's initiatives in a way that limited the damage of this unfolding catastrophe. Uh, and after the Lin Biao affair, after Lin Biao died, and that was um, 19, end of 1971, Mao basically turned over. People who don't know, Lin Biao was his Mao's Lin Biao was his his designated com comrade in arms and successor after after Liu Shaoqi and Zhou Enlai were, and and Deng Xiaoping were pushed aside. He became the number two person, uh, and um, he was the one that appeared alongside Mao at all of the rallies that he went to. And he died uh, in a in a in a, in a uh, plane crash in Mongolia. And the story was that he had tried to, in 1971, he had tried to carry out a military coup uh, and assassinate Chairman Mao. Now, whether that's true or not, uh, we don't know, but that was the story. Um, and he definitely was dead. Uh, and so the story, uh, the, the, the rationale for the Cultural Revolution kind of crashed with the plane in, in Mongolia. And so Mao turned over the running of the country again, uh, he couldn't. He couldn't turn it over to Liu Shaoqi because Liu Shaoqi was dead. He died in in prison in 1969. Um, so he turned it over to to, to Zhou Enlai, and Zhou Enlai worked tirelessly to try to fix things. But he contracted cancer and became ill, and and, and Mao agreed to bring Deng Xiaoping back. Uh, and Deng Xiaoping worked very effectively to try to sort things out to get the economy moving again, uh, to stop factional fighting in, in schools and factories and bureaus and so forth. But he went too far and Mao got rid of him the second time, beginning in 1976. So um, uh, so when I say that that Joe and Lai, and I think Deng Xiaoping too, you know, they, they did not want to challenge Mao. And I think 
I think Mal, I think Mal's perception, which is probably accurate, they're just waiting for him to die. <laughs> and they would fix things after he died. I think he understood that. Um, it, I'm not going to say it's tragic, but I think I think he was. I think he had pretty clear self self perception. I don't think he was insane. He behaved he behaved like a madman in some ways, yeah. but but I I think he was quite rational. I think he understood. I, I think you know his his ideals, if you want to call them that, were were more or less clearly articulated. Mostly what he was opposed to. Uh, and the things he was opposed to, I think, you know, uh, were worth opposing. <laughs> I mean, a bureaucratic dictatorship of the Soviet style with a great deal of inequality is, you know, it's hard to argue with that. It, uh, it, but he didn't have an answer. Uh, he, yeah. he he really didn't have an answer. And so, you know, I, I basically came to the conclusion after more than 20 years of teaching about post-1940 on China that what I was studying up through the death of Mao was the Chinese revolution. It wasn't post-revolution China. That was the revolution. That's, that's where all the changes took place. 49, the changes hadn't, had just started to take place. And so those 27 years uh, were the revolution. And Mao was a revolutionary and he acted like it. He didn't act like a bureaucratic leader of a stable communist Soviet-style regime. Yeah. Uh, and there are no other leaders like that. Certainly not the Kims in North Korea. They never did anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly not Inver Hoja in Albania, who parroted the China's line, but he never mobilized anybody. And so no, no one ever did that. And, and Mao was, I think, unique. Um, it's interesting. I, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, please. <laughs> but I think, you know, the... <sighs> The historical paradox um, presented by Mao and what he did, in the, especially during the last 10 years of his life, is that he paved the way for a radically different China that was much more successful than he ever would have imagined. Uh, and that was much more objectionable than anything he could have imagined. Um, you know, I, I don't think... I don't think he had any suspicion that China would end up going the direction it did. What he was fighting against was basically the, the, the Khrushchev-style Soviet socialism. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I tell my students, like, you know, he pulled back his fist to punch something he didn't like, and he hit something with his elbow, <laughs> hit someone with the elbow that ended up completely changing things. Uh, he inadvertently destroyed uh, the bureaucratic stratum that would have tried to keep a Soviet-style system in, in shape. And Deng Xiaoping, therefore, had a much freer reign to remake things in a, in a new direction than Gorbachev did. And, and, and then Khrushchev did. They were both quite limited. Yeah. Um, and uh, we can attribute that to Mao, but that is not what he intended. But that bureaucratic state, Mao did not inherit this from uh, any predecessors, right? He, he no. did play a role in building it up in the first place or not. Yeah, but I, I think it took after about 10 years, I think he, he was starting to understand <laughs> yeah. what kind of animal he was he was dealing with. Um, and, you know, I there's a part of my 
part of my brain that sympathizes with him because you know, he's looking. I mean, he was he could have just, you know, enjoyed the trappings of being a great dictator and hang out in his villas uh, and do whatever he wanted. Um, but he chose to be dissatisfied with what he built and he wanted he wanted to fix it. Um, and he wanted to fix it in a way that a revolutionary would not not kind of a um, not in the way that a skilled bureaucrat or politician would. It, what what I was going to say was the thing that, um, among other things, one, one thing that's coming across through this discussion is that you you do clearly have uh, a respect for this guy, and, and not, I don't mean you're you're glorifying or you know condoning any of his yeah. actions or anything like that. Um, I, I mean it more like I, I heard about this jewel thief one time who got caught by the police and the police were talking about him and they were like, yeah. they, at first they thought it was a team of guys because it was so complex yeah. and they were, yeah. you know, the, I guess this, um, w would you call it respect the, this feeling or? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess respect is better than sympathy. Um, but I, I, I think, I think that, you know, if there are biographers that portray him as just a moral monster, Right. So, you know, that would be Halliday in, in John Rubin's biography of Mao. It's called Mao, the True Story or something. And I read that book and it was like, they're, they're telling you, they're going inside Mao's mind and Mao's mind is, how can I, how can I crush this guy that I hate? You know, that I, I, you know, I, I, I think there's a logic to what he did, but frankly, the, the leader of that era that I have by far the most sympathy and respect for is Joe Enlai. Because uh, if if I, if it were not for Joe and Lai, I think China would have would have collapsed um, during the Cultural Revolution. And I see him as his personality as someone who was willing to put aside his ego, his ambition completely, to serve what he thought was a greater good of China and to rescue it from the worst impulses of Mao. And in order to do that, he had to abase him, get very close to Mao and abase himself in front of him. But he was extremely capable uh, of outmaneuvering the younger loyalists that Mao brought in, like his wife, Zhang Qing, Chen Boda, people like Lin Biao. He, he always outmaneuvered them. He was a very skillful politician and bureaucrat. Um, and he had no ego. He, he had absolutely no ambition to take over for Mao. And he made a decision that uh, Mao is the leader of the country and he should serve him uh, and try to limit his, uh, his worst impulses. And he did that, I think, relatively effectively. So, um, you know, I, I rank him as, uh, if, if there's a character uh, that I have a lot of respect and sympathy for, it's, it's Joe and I. Um, I, I feel like I have enough respect and enough sympathy for Mao to recognize that he he actually did understand that the other leaders did not, and he understood correctly, that the other leaders were waiting for him to die and were, were going to change things. And he had the, I mean, I would never have advised him to do this, but he decided since he was already 70 years old, he was going to smash the machine and just see what happens in an effort to keep them from doing what he thought they would do. And he inadvertently made it easier for them to do that.
after he died. Um, but you know, his attitude, he's, he's an interesting guy because he thought, he thought that no progress is made unless things got all torn apart. He thought, you know, class struggle, disorder, violence is what moved history forward. He was, he was really an, an ideologue. Um, he believed the Marxist, the basic Marxist idea that class struggle, not economic development, moved history forward. And so the reason he was willing to throw China in disorder, he thought somehow something better would come out of it. He was a gambler. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, at, at the end of his life, he's, he made a few statements that were recorded and his attitude seemed to be, well, maybe I failed. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I failed. It's unclear what's going to happen. I tried. Yeah. I, you know, I, I defeated, I defeated the nationalists. I created a modern state. No one disagrees with that. Except for this cultural revolution thing, I don't know what you guys are going to do with it after I die. Yeah. That's up to you. You figure it out. I gave it my best shot, and it doesn't look like it worked out too well. So, you know, what can you say about a guy like that? I mean, he, uh, he I, I think, I think he, he, he was, he was not crazy. Um, yeah. And I, I think he saw, I think he saw the direction that China was going, but I don't think he ever imagined you'd get a China that you had today. Um, and um, uh, the parallels between he, him and Xi Jinping are totally misguided. I mean, really, you, you, you think totally misguided. Xi Jinping respects him because he was a he was a kid in school when Mao was being uh, was being praised as a genius, and so he clearly has this residual respect for um, much more than me for Chairman for Chairman Mao. But I, I, you know, he is a leader who thinks that the purpose of socialism is not that history moves forward through economic development, okay? That the purpose of socialism is to improve the livelihood of the Chinese people. He's not Mao, he's Liu Shaoqi. <laughs> that's what Liu Shaoqi was purged and ultimately died for because that's what he believed. Uh, and, and so, you know, Xi Jinping is fine with markets, you know, he's fine with being engaged in the world economy. He's okay with the fact that China has wealthy capitalists. I mean, he gives them a hard time from time to time, but he hasn't taken their property back from them. Um, he's a manager and he's a nationalist. He, he wants, you know, and he's not a revolutionary like Mao. He would never consider mobilizing ordinary people to criticize officials. I mean, that's the way Mao would have dealt with corruption. Right. But Xi Jinping deals with corruption the way that Liu Shaoqi dealt with corruption. He forms a huge investigation team, goes down uh, and puts people in isolation, gets them to confess. Um, and, and so he's a top-down bureaucrat. Uh, he has, he's, he's adopted the trappings of Mao, right? The great leader, uh, his, his, his thought is in the constitution, whatever his thought is. I mean, I, I've read his book, I've read parts of his books and I can't figure out why people even bother reading his stuff, but you know, um, he, he's no bound. But, you know, he's revived some of the stylistics of leadership of Mao. He wants to be in total control the way Mao, he imagines Mao was back in the old days. But what he's about, what his mentality is, what policies he wants to carry out, they're the antithesis of what Mao wanted. Um, I mean, he's Khrushchev to the nth power.
<laughs> There's this aura of of competency uh, among Chinese leadership, at least in the West. People uh, people I know look at Chinese leadership as being highly competent. That like whatever you say about them, they can get stuff done. They can make policies happen. They see into the future. It seems like there was a little bit of that going on. We were talking about the people uh, who were in power around Mao. Uh, and you mentioned Mao's like political craftiness. Uh, yeah. That aura of competency is accurate. I mean, it seems like those top-down uh, governments tend to erode in terms of competency over time as like power is given to loyalists and things like that. Well, um, you're referring to, to Mao now? Um, well, I, I'm kind of referring to... You know, it seems like there was competency on some level in some dimensions during Mao's time. And uh, certainly Deng Xiaoping, very competent, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm curious when you see someone like Xi Jinping, who is giving more power within the party to loyalists and things like that, whether you feel like this this competency is uh, under threat, eroding, is it illusory? Well, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. Um Maybe that is a parallel with Mao that makes sense. Uh, Mao, Mao basically mobilized the party system to um, enforce his will uh, against bureaucrats who, um, government bureaucrats and experts who were, were running the country in a way that he didn't really want them to run it. Um, uh, and, I, and I see... I see Xi Jinping trying to strengthen what he's trying to strengthen the party organization and through uh, emphasis on political loyalty and commitment and so forth. And, and, and that that fits with Mao era China, to be sure. But that's something also that Liu Shaoqi was actually most famous for. He was he was the organization man. Uh, and he was constantly trying. I mean, he wrote a book, How to Be a Good Communist. <laughs> what? What are the ethics of a communist leader? And that's the kind of thing that that uh, Xi Jinping is is preaching now. Now, if we if we go to Xi Jinping, I mean, I, I have certain sympathy and respect for him as well because I think he realizes that the economic and social changes in China over the last thirty years really uh, really were eroding the party's power. Um, and 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 you know, his his greatest fear, and it's kind of a weird thing because, you know, after 30 years of economic success and rising power on the world stage, he's freaked out about the Communist Party losing power. That's the thing that seems to motivate him every day when he gets out of bed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, <laughs> I think there's something to that. Um, now, I don't, you know, my, I would not advise him to go in the direction that he's going. He's, he's trying to clamp down and revive some of the old traditional ways of party members, you know, from some mythical era where they weren't corrupt and so forth. Uh, but I, you know, China's got a serious corruption problem uh, and he's going after it uh, much harder and much longer than any leader since Mao. Uh, and uh, you know, so I've got a certain, I mean, I don't, I don't approve his policies. Um, I don't think they're going to be that effective, but um, you know, I, I think there's a logic of, of if you if you understand the situation that China's in and and you realize that there there might be some reason to fear that the party will lose power. I think I think he's overly concerned about the party losing power. I think the party could 
voluntarily give up a lot of it, the powers that it has and things would run much better without really undermining party control, but that's not the way he looks at it. Uh, and you have to understand that, you know, he, he comes from a generation where uh, he grew up in an educational system where Mao was worshiped, never questioned. And then he, then he went through a period where China just broke apart. Uh, it's chaos. So I think, I think he's very sensitive to, to that experience, makes him very sensitive to what can happen if the party loses control. Uh, and uh, I think that is that is his life experience. That's his biography. Um, you know, another part of the biography is that he never really got a very good education. He was in an elite junior high school when the Cultural Revolution hit and it closed. Uh, I don't think he went, I don't think he finished a real high school. Uh, and then he went, he went to um, Peking University, I think in 1976 or 77, when they were selecting students primarily on political rectitude. And, and I don't know what he studied. I think he studied Marxism. I, I don't know, but the universities were not very good back then. And so he, he finished before the, uh, the universities that he went to really up their game uh, and admitted really top students. And so I, I think he he missed out on having a really good education as well. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying he's dumb, but right. uh, you know, he, he had to play catch up. Uh, and uh, I think he's a lifelong bureaucrat. Interesting. I didn't know that about his educational record. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> There was a very interesting article in the New Yorker some years back by, uh, I'm just blanking on his name right now. So he's a, he's a very prominent writer for the New Yorker. He did a piece on Xi Jinping and described his life and um, went in great depth into it and uh, talked about the impressions of other world leaders who met with him and talked with him. And many of them got the impression that this guy really doesn't know anything about the world. The questions that he asked are amazing. Um, and then he described his, his experience. And, and I wrote to him, I wish I, <laughs> I wish I could remember the name. It's just on the tip of my tongue. Um, I wrote to him because I met him before and I said, boy, you know, the impression I get from your essay, you don't really say it, but you're saying he's really poorly educated. And he said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you understood me quite well. Um, his name. He wrote a book called River Town a long time ago. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> so that's you know that's when I first kind of understood what what she's biography was. And you know you have to have some sympathy with him because his, his father was purged even before the Cultural Revolution. He was treated like dog crap during the Cultural Revolution because of who his father was, and his sister committed suicide. Yeah. Uh, and I, her, his mother had so, some horrific thing happen to her. So you, you have to sympathize with, with someone who has the resilience to fight through that uh, and still be, you know, mentally balanced and, you know, uh, effective enough interpersonally to be selected the top leader in that system. Totally. Well, was it Peter Hessler? P uh, yeah, Peter Hessler. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, exactly. Cool. I, yeah. This happens to me now and then. I can remember everything about a person except their name. I don't know why that is. <laughs> um, okay, so we're, we're at an hour and a half here. 
Um, okay. I, I could continue going, but I think it's probably a good time for the, for the listeners and for the interest of your time as well uh, to wrap it up. Um, okay. Do, do you, j- just curious, do you, do you study uh, like contemporary China, like Xi Jinping? I know you keep up with all these things, but. Um, yeah, I, I don't study contemporary politics. Um, I, I study politics long past because it's um, because I, you have one advantage, you know what happened. <laughs> the, problem, the problem with studying Chinese politics today is you don't know what's going to happen, right? And I, I don't, I don't. That that's a little bit too much like high level journalism to me. I don't, I don't feel confident. Sure. The other thing is that we have a lot more hard information about what happened in the Cultural Revolution now than what's happening today in elite politics. But what I do study are things that uh, about contemporary China. And actually, I'm not working on the Cultural Revolution anymore I've, after I finished my last book on Guangxi, which was the most horrifically violent place during the Cultural Revolution, I, I told myself, I can't, I can't do this anymore. This, yeah. <laughs> I've learned, I've answered the questions I had about the Cultural Revolution. I wrote more books about it than I planned because the last two books I wrote, uh, I, I did because I had an opportunity. Uh, these materials were presented to me once, first by a collaborator from China that I've co-authored a lot of work with, and then this a huge collection of detailed uh, documentation about Guangxi just fell into my lap. And so, but now I'm working on things that, that I can uh, document, like um, uh, levels of inequality in China and why it's gotten so extreme, despite the fact that the government has the ability to do something about it if they wanted to. They have the resources. Yeah. Uh, and my my research my new research project now is about Chinese, large Chinese corporations. Uh, China has more large corporations in the Fortune Global 500 than the United States now. Uh, they passed us up two years ago. Um, and uh, they're like 10 ahead of us now. They, they're kind of looking at us in the rearview mirror. So the question I have is, how, where did these companies come from? What are they? I mean, you know, people document this rise, but there aren't a lot of detailed studies of all of these gigantic corporations. So that's that's what I'm doing now. Well, uh, that, that sounds like a very fascinating topic. Um, if you ever wanted to come on again and talk about that, I'd be down. Well, get back to me in six months. I might have some something to report. I'm writing my first paper on it as as we speak. I was working on it right up to the time I logged on. Excellent. Your podcast. So it's just, and you know, it's the cultural revolution is you know, I think a really important thing, uh, really important topic, but not many people are working on it now and people don't really pay much attention to it. So, you know, it's not, so it would be nice to work on something that is kind of high on everyone's mind when they think about China today. So, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, and so maybe it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I went, I went into the past for a long period of time, but now I come back to the present. There we go. Uh, All right. Well, good to talk to you. I hope thank you very much for your time. Yes. Um, For people who want to uh, see more, uh, some of your books are A Decade of Upheaval, Fracture Rebellion, China Under Mao. There's more. Um, I'm sure just Google your name unless you have like a particular website uh, you want people to check out. No, I don't have. I'm totally useless in promoting myself, but I'll I'll do it right now. There's there's two books. The two most recent books in the Cultural Revolution was. 
a decade of upheaval, which I wrote with a professor at uh, Fudan University um, uh, in Shanghai. And it is the only in-depth study of politics in one Chinese rural county from 1966 all the way up through 76. And it's, it's really quite a vivid portrayal of this place that was in the middle of nowhere. It was totally disrupted for 10 years. And the, the, the book that came out at the end of March with Stanford University Press called Civil War in Guangxi uh, is about the one province in China that had the most horrific levels of uh, violence throughout the province that included um, gory massacres. 100,000 people were killed in, in one month through mass killings that resembled genocide, but actually were not genocide. Um, and that's as bad as it got in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, so if you really want to be depressed, <laughs> you can read that one. Uh, because that's the one that that uh, cured me of, of working on the Cultural Revolution anymore. Anyway, thanks very much. Um, and uh, I guess I'll go talk to my granddaughter now. <laughs> all right well thank you andrew uh right. here take care good luck thanks for your interest in all this thank you to andrew walder and thanks for listening to dunk tank i'm duck and gammy see you next time